All right, please open your Bibles to Luke 22, 47 through 62, or it will also be on the screen. Luke 22, 47 through 62. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what he would, what would follow, they said, Lord, we should strike, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with them. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too was a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Good morning, church. So we got a doozy of a text today. Historically, this text is usually kind of split into two, uh, but we have it together. So buckle your seats. We're going to go hard. And I hope you're hungry. Hope you're hungry and thirsty for the word, not for me, but for God's word. Just want to remind you, we've been moving our way throughout the gospel of Luke towards Jerusalem towards the cross to the place of his execution. And in last week's sermon, Pastor Ross covered the passage where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his closest friends, and he warns them, warns them not to fall into temptation. And how do they avoid falling into temptation, this, this awful temptation that is coming around the corner? What do they do? They have to be with the Father. They have to be with their father, and they have to go to their father regularly with this heart posture of, Father, your will be done, not mine. And yet the disciples cannot stay awake. They keep falling asleep. Multiple times, they keep falling asleep, and they're not ready for what's about to come around the corner. So we're about to, in our passage, witness the most unjust arrest of all time on the most innocent man of all time, in the most heartbreaking manner of all time, from the worst friends of all time. So that's my interesting hook of an intro. We're going to just jump right into it. Verse 
47. And just a heads up, I'm going to be filling in this narrative with other gospel accounts that help flesh out some of the details. So we're going to break this section up into two. The first half is Judas's betrayal in the garden, and then the second half is Peter's betrayal and denials of Jesus. Verse 47 in chapter 22. While he was still speaking, Jesus speaking to his disciples, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, before we jump right in, consider the history Jesus had with Judas. Jesus spent all night praying, and he picked Judas to be one of his 12. They have spent nearly every moment together for the last three years. Judas was on the boat when Jesus calmed the storms before they were all capsized into a watery grave. Judas was there handing out the multiplied fish and loads multiple times to the thousands of people. Judas was there when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he woke from the dead. Judas prayed with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He laughed with Jesus. He talked late into the night with Jesus and even performed miracles by the power of Jesus. Jesus Judas performed miracles. He probably led some people to Jesus. Think about that. He was among the 12 that went out and among the 72 that went out. And now here, this Jesus is betraying Jesus. Jesus, Judas is able to betray Jesus because Judas is a close friend and only the close friends know where Jesus goes late at night. As was his pattern, Jesus would go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and be with the Father. And Judas is leads a cohort of people to betray him. Jesus, Judas is, do I keep saying Jesus instead of Judas? God help me. <laughs> Jesus is not betraying Jesus. Judas and Jesus, help me, Lord. So Judas is betraying his friend and master. Two Psalms come to mind. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then Psalm 55, 13. But is you a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend? If any of you here know the pain and sting and disorienting experience of being betrayed by a close friend, Jesus knows it well. He knows it so well. And one of the differences between us and Jesus is that if you look at the history of our relationships, all of us can look at areas that we failed, areas that we didn't love well or we sinned, and yet Jesus is not like us. He never, ever gave a reason to betray him, ever. He never had a mistake, never loved poorly, never let anyone down, and yet Jesus is being betrayed by his best friend. So if you've been betrayed and I welcome you to pour out your heart to Jesus. He can empathize with you to the uttermost. Now, a natural question if you're reading this text is to ask yourself, why would Judas do such a beastly thing? Why would he betray Jesus, his friend? Look at Judas's motivation. Luke 22, 3 through 5. We're going to go back a little bit. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. 
So we know from this passage and other passages that, G, that Judas would help himself. He was a treasurer. He helped himself to the, the money donated to Jesus. And so we see this picture that Judas actually idolized money. And as we've taught many times before at our church, money is not the root of all kinds of evil. But as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced himself with many pangs. So whenever we talk about created things and we make it an ultimate things thing, it becomes our idol and replaces God. So Judas, I'm sure, had some respect, had some love for Jesus. How could he not after three years of walking with him? But ultimately, when it came down to him, his greatest chief love was money and all that money brings. So Judas chooses money over Jesus. But he's not the only one, is he? See, before we throw stones in judgment and discuss that, Judas, how many of us here have fallen into the trap of money in our world and in the church? Judas's fall is a warning for all of us, especially who live in this West, Western context. Materialism is our creed. Keeping up with the Joneses is a common value that we all instinctively know we ought to keep. And the endless pursuit of more is stuffed down our throats from billboards to commercials to TV to songs. It is what we live in. So the fall of Judas is a warning for all of us. And do not be mistaken, we are all susceptible to this fall if we're not careful. As Paul says, take heed lest you fall if you think you stand. So back to the story, I'm going to go to the Gospel of John, John 18, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. I want you to imagine the scene. This, this word right here, band of soldiers in Greek, is a word for cohort. And do you know how many people would be in a cohort? Around 480 people. So in my mind, when I think about this arrest scene in the garden, I think about just a few guys, like temple guards. You know, if you've watched The Passion of Christ with Jim Caviezel and all that stuff, you just have the scene for a bunch of temple guards. But actually, the reality is we're talking about hundreds of people, likely. Torches, lanterns, like pitchforks, the whole nine. Can you imagine in the dead of night, in the garden, being surrounded by a mob of close to 500 people with lanterns and pitchforks and so forth? They, they probably didn't have pitchforks. I don't know why I keep saying pitchforks. It's probably because I watched Shrek recently with my kids, so I'm just thinking about that, okay? But imagine the menacing, intimidating scene. You are there praying, and you're trying to stay awake. Jesus is saying, please pray with me. I'm, I'm so in so much trauma and agonizing that I'm literally sweating drops of blood my capillaries of my head are bursting with the stress please stay awake with me and in your state of drowsiness you look up and there's hundreds of people surrounding you with lanterns and weapons do you feel the weight of that we can so easily just scoff at the disciples of how cowardice they are but well do you see yourself in the garden right now you see this scene and in matthew 26 we see that jesus judas gave them a a sign And this is interesting because Jesus, as we see in other scriptures, though the most remarkable man, most innocent, most beautiful, most powerful, he was not remarkable in his appearance. 
He wouldn't walk in people like, dang, look at that Jesus and his flowing hair and his good looks. He was just like a normal man. In fact, according to Isaiah, he may have looked less appealing than the average man. <laughs> so they, in the dark of night, they need to know who is this guy that we are arresting. So Judas gives them a sign. What's the sign? The sign is a kiss. So Jesus, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss, that is the man, seize him. So Judas, Judas goes up to his friend and master and gives him a traitor's kiss. This kiss would be a mocking kiss, not a loving kiss, and perhaps alluding to Psalm 2, if you know that passage. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And yet Jesus calls him by name. Can you imagine if you were Jesus and Judas is coming up and you already foretold that Judas is going to do this? Remember, he handed him bread at the table. He knows this has happened. And imagine Judas coming up to you. You know he's going to betray you. What would you do? Pull him in, burn in hell. I know what you're doing. But what does he do? Judas. Are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He uses his name. It's almost the question is, is almost giving him an out, Thomas. Are you really going to do this? Are you sure you want to do this, Judas? How will the disciples respond to this menacing scene? In the midst of stress and pressure and trauma and all the craziness going on, how, what do the disciples reach for? Luke twenty two forty nine, And when those around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Which is common for us. So when, when things are stressful, we try to take things in our own hands. Let me get myself out of this. Let me work hard enough or, or make enough phone calls or do something, get myself out. And what did we learn from last week's passage? The first thing they ought to do is do what? Pray, pray. But they don't wait for Jesus to answer. They take matters into their own hands without Jesus even being able to respond. Verse 50, and then one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. In the Gospel of John, we see more details that this person is the apostle Peter. And this servant is named Malchus. He has a name. And make no mistake, Peter was going for the kill. He just missed. And he gets this guy's ear. He lops it off. And, and perhaps Peter... Knowing that Jesus foretold that he would betray him is trying to muster up the courage, artificial courage, to prove that he is a man. He will not fall. Peter is the ready, shoot, aim kind of guy. It's like me. Right? And so Peter is trying to maybe prove to Jesus, I will be faithful. Though all these people, will, all the other disciples may fall, I won't. And Peter takes things in his own hands without thinking, without waiting for Jesus' answer and lops off this guy's ear. How many of us are like Peter before we wait for Jesus' answer? We go on and put things into our own hands. Oh, God, help us. I do that so often. How we, we pray about it. When we pray about it, it means we just thought about it for a few moments and then we just do whatever we think to. God, help us. And what does Jesus do in response? boy, Peter. You show them. You show them not to mess with me. You show them that I'm the innocent one. You show them that this is a sham of a trial and a sham of an arrest. This is injustice. Take it in your own hands. Good job, Peter. You're the rock. But what does Jesus do? Verse 51. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. 
If you grew up in church or you're familiar with this text, this may not shock you because you're so familiar, but this should shock you. This is, one of the la- this is the last recorded miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, the last healing miracle. And even at Jesus' darkest hour, when his friends betray him and he's being unjustly arrested, Jesus is loving his enemies. If there was ever a moment where you say, Jesus, you know what? You don't need to be that good. We understand. Who would not do what? Who would not take vengeance at that moment? Would you fault Jesus if he just all of a sudden was just like, bam, all of you are dead? Right? But Jesus, in this moment of darkness, when he is being treated not as he deserves, but absolutely worse than he deserves, Jesus is thinking about others. Jesus does not ask us or call us or commands us, command us to love our enemies and sit back as if he doesn't do it well first. He calls us to that which he exemplifies in his very heart. In this opposite of our culture, many would see this and scoff and call it weakness. Jesus, you're so weak. Why would you love these people? What's wrong with you? Don't let those who wrong get away with it. Don't you care about justice, Jesus? And yet Jesus loves the undeserving and those who are literally after him with malice. In that moment, would you blame him for not healing that guy? Would you blame him? If that happened to you and you had the power to heal, would you heal in that moment? But make no mistake, this is not weakness, but power under perfect control. We even see in the Gospel of John that they say, they ask for for Jesus, and Jesus says, I am. And what happens to everybody, all hundreds of people, what do they do? Fall down. Fall down at at the declaration of who he is. They fall down on the ground. All he has to say is, I am. Boom, and they're all down. And then what does Jesus say in Matthew 26? He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. I mean, legions of angels. We're talking about tens of thousands of angels. And, and yet, if you know your Old Testament scriptures, how many angels did it took to kill hundreds of thousands of Assyrians? Just one. We're talking about the most powerful man who ever lived under perfect control because he understands the Father's plan. Why? Because he loves the world. Even though the world hates him and is treating him like filth and like a criminal, he is loving them. Marvel at the love and compassion of Jesus, church. Don't let these familiar passages just be calloused upon your hearts. He heals the very people who are arresting him. Also know that God, to accomplish his purposes, does not need to use brute force. The way the world thinks is might makes right. Take it in your own hands, Jesus. In fact, Jesus, is, as is his pattern, will flip everything upside down on its head. He defeats sin not by committing violence, but by absorbing violence. That's a lesson for us today. He defeats sin not by committing more violence to abolish sin, but he actually absorbs violence himself. And Jesus says to Pilate later on in John chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Now let's talk about the innocence of Jesus more. 
verse 52 of chapter 22. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? See, in my mind, when I read this, because like many, I have been shaped more by my culture and things I've seen on screens than the Bible at times. And in my mind, I just see the the temple guards, but actually, according to this passage, the chief priests and the officers are there. Members of the Sanhedrin are there. Members who know their Bibles inside and out are there witnessing this sham arrest. They witness firsthand, though, Jesus healing one of their servants miraculously. Consider that. These temple guards, these 400 plus people arresting Jesus, plus these members of the Sanhedrin are there and they're seeing a man healed in front of their eyes. And what do they do? Repent, fall down, and worship? No. They harden their heart and they continue as planned. This is just a reminder that miracles alone are not enough to change hearts. We see this often. We see atheists and skeptics and even myself over the years have said one time or another, if God does blank, then I will blank. God, if you only give me a wife or you only give me a husband or if you only give me a child or if you only give me that job or if you only give me that blank, then I know that you're real. And yet we see throughout all scripture and throughout history that oftentimes God will do the most miraculous sign right in front of their face and still that is not enough to change their heart. Heart. We need a miracle of the heart, a transformation of the heart. Can you just imagine that? You would think that Jesus healing this man's lopped off ear in front of them would be like, hey, hey, hey guys, are we sure? Are you guys sure about this? What are we doing? This is a level of hardness that is hard to fathom. Have you come out against a robber? Jesus asks, his words are prophetic because in many ways, Jesus is going to be treated like he was a robber and crucified next to robbers and insurrectionists. Jesus further pushes his point, verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. What is Jesus doing? He is exposing their duplicity. He's exposing their cowardice. If this was a legitimate arrest on a legitimate grounds, they would do it in daybreak. They would do it out in the open temple courts with the crowds, and they would be able to say, hey, we're arresting him because of these reasons, but they know they don't have evidence because nothing can stick on this man because he's the most innocent man who ever lived, and so therefore they have to do this sham arrest in the middle of the night. The irony of this whole situation, when you think about these 500 plus people surrounding him is that it's just the most ridiculous, absurd kind of scene. Jesus is the last person in the world you need a whole army and a mob of weapons to come around. He's the most gentle, the most meek. Imagine the absurdity of tanks just, just kind of going through our, in front of this church building. And we look out, and we're like, what's going on? And there's all these soldiers marching, and there's helicopters. We're like, what is going on? And then we, we finally go, and we see they're surrounding like a little toddler with a little, little toy. Like, wow, this is overkill. This doesn't make sense. This, this, this person is innocent. This toddler is innocent. Why are you coming with this force? And, and, and the absurdity of the scene should make us say, what is going on here? This is the most innocent man who ever lived. Why would you come against him like that? What, is, what does this mean that... Their hour 
It's their hour in the power of darkness. Well, I think it means that, and that for the next few hours, it will look like Satan is in control. It will look like Satan is winning. Under cover of darkness, the religious leaders will have the greatest mock trial ever against the most innocent man ever. Soldiers will torture and punish a man who has ever only done good. Crowds will turn on Jesus and jeer at him like he's a terrorist. It will look like Satan had won and the revolutionary kingdom Jesus is bringing has collapsed. But Jesus is trusting his father's plan. I love this quote from one preacher. He said this, the very fact that Jesus, Jesus told the forces of darkness which hour was theirs showed that he was Lord of that hour and every hour. <laughs> you got this one. I'm letting you have it. Jesus was defeating evil and darkness by voluntarily taking upon evil and darkness on himself. Make no mistake, Jesus is in complete control here as he's willingly, voluntarily letting himself under this sham trial and, and, and arrest. Now, we're going to move to this next scene with Peter's denial. But before we do, I want to do a flashback to the sermon that Pastor Scott preached. If you haven't heard that sermon, please do. It's very powerful and helpful. Thanks for serving us, Scott. Let's look at Peter's hubris. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. I just want to remind you, we're doing, we're preaching through the whole Bible, uh, Luke, carefully and slowly, but this was meant to be read in larger chunks, and so Luke 22 should be kept in your mind. So this is just a reminder, when you read the Bible, read the whole section surrounding, surrounding context. Okay, verse 31. Jesus is speaking. Would you read this out loud with me? Simon, Simon, behold. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. Scott did it so well. But Peter is so confident in himself. He knows himself. He knows he can handle the pressure. In Matthew's gospel, we see another glimpse as well. It's on the screen. But Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. In verse 33, Peter answers, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Peter goes to a new level. He's not merely content to say, Jesus, I will be faithful to you, Jesus. He has to go the next level and say, and, and fall into the comparison trap. I'm better than these guys. They're not like me. They're not made of, of, of the tougher stuff that I'm made of. I know me, Jesus. How many times have I counseled others or myself have said, I know myself. I know what I can handle. I got this. So with that in mind, Jesus' prediction, let's look at the setting and context of Peter. Make sure we, we have this picture in mind. Peter just witnessed his master and Lord and best friend arrested by hundreds of people. He, Jesus is no longer in favor with the crowds, no longer under the protection of day. It's dark. The entire movement, all his followers are in danger of collapsing that moment and found guilty of being associated with Jesus. Consider the amount of pressure and fear would be in the air. 
Added to this, Peter understands that executions could happen. His life is in danger. And added to that, imagine that Peter just almost killed a man. And if you've ever been in a fight or in a situation that's traumatic like that, afterwards you're shook. You're shaking. There's, you feel it in your body. You feel raw. You feel disoriented. You're not in your right state. And finally, note that Peter is still following Jesus, the text says. But what does it say? At a distance. Peter is trapped between fear and love. He loves his Lord, but he has failed his Lord. And if he continues to follow his Lord, he may lose everything. And so with all these raging, conflicting dynamics in his heart, we enter the scene. Verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. Again, this is the, pre- the high priest's house, not the op- open courtyards where they would normally do this. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with them. With him. Peter is exposed. Even though he's trying to hide in the darkness of firelight, in front of the group, the servant girl rats him out. And what will he do? This rock, this strong man, the leader of the 12, the great leader and the man of faith, who just declared to, the, to, to Jesus through the other 12, though they all fall, I will not. What will he do? The little servant girl calls him out in front of a crowd. Verse 57. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. The disciples have failed to pray in preparation for this moment. And Peter's confidence, so strong in the privacy and safety of a meal, has wilted. Verse 58. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. I've had many times over my life, like maybe you have, where you you missed opportunities to share of Christ. You got scared in the moment. You stumbled over your words. You missed an opportunity and you walk away. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. Please help me remember next time. And you you get more prepared. And and the more times you see those opportunities, you start to cue in when to to speak, when to, 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 uh, to, to jump in. And yet Peter is not given these temptations in succession within seconds. He's given hours in between. He has time to pray. He has time to rethink his attitude in his heart. He has time to wake up from his spiritual slumber. And yet one hour later, Peter's given another test. And he says this, 59 and 60. And after an interval of an hour, about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. They could, they could tell by his dialect that he was probably from Galilee, and that would tip him off that he's one of the followers of Jesus. Verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. When we look at other gospel accounts, we see more details, not contradicting details, just more details. Matthew chapter 26, verse 74. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. 
What's going on here? What's this curse? Peter is using religious language. He could not make a stronger denial. He's literally saying this. God, send me to hell if I'm lying. I do not know Jesus. It would be our modern day terms of, I swear on my mother's grave, except that is still not far enough. This is a tremendous denial. This isn't a, you know, I'm not really good friends with him anymore. I'm not, uh, I'm not into that anymore. I, used, it's, I don't even know the man and God sent me to hell if I'm lying. He boasted too much and prayed too little. And as one preacher said, the rock man has been thoroughly crushed. How many of us have been like Peter before? you like me. So confident in our self-control, so arrogant in our own morality, making claims that I would never do that or I would always do that only to find ourselves humbled with mud on our face. If you've been following Jesus for any time, you've been in that situation because we all can regress down to self-sufficiency, self-confidence. And what makes matters worse is what happens next. Verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and whipped bitterly. Consider the almighty power and sovereignty of Jesus who told Peter exactly what he would do and also timed it all with a rooster's crow in his glance. This is not coincidence. Peter's denial a rooster's crow, and Jesus is being probably transported in the courtyard at the moment just in time to see him and make eye contact. Even though Jesus looks powerless in this moment, he is in complete control. And some of you need to hear that in general. Right now, some of you have situations and circumstances that looks like God is not in control. You doubt that God is in control. God loves you because it's too dark, too painful, too confusing. But let me tell you, he's in control of everything. And even in the darkest moment of history, Jesus is still in control. And let's consider the rooster. When we think about a rooster crowing, what does roosters do when they crow? They wake up the world, right? If you lived in a farm or lived near a farm, you hear roosters in the morning, they wake you up. They wake up the world. And Peter has been spiritually asleep. And he could not stay up and pray and prepare himself for the trials and temptations. He just failed in now. And then the sovereign crow of a rooster finally wakes him up from his slumber. And Peter realizes what he's done. He's finally wakened with reality. He's finally face to face for who he really is and what he's done. And my prayer, one of my prayers this morning is that many of you or some of you will be waken up by this gathering. That there would be a spiritual rooster awakening of your soul to realize who you are before God, who you really are, not what you think you are, and waking you up from your slumber. Amen. Let it be. Now let's consider the gaze of Jesus. Can you imagine this? This is one of the hardest parts of this passage that I was preparing this week. Can you imagine making eye contact with Jesus after betraying him? Peter sees the gaze of his Lord, his best friend, right after he finishes swearing on his life, threatening hellfire for him, denying that he even knows Jesus. Do you see the face of Jesus in your heart right now? What is his face saying? What are his eyes like? And as, and as much as I know these scriptures, I see in his eyes 
not anger, but deep sadness, a broken heart. Peter, and yet Jesus knew this was coming, and that's the amazing confounding paradox of the Bible is that Jesus is sovereign over all these events, but yet he's fully emotionally present in every little thing. Nothing is catching him off guard, and yet he's fully there. He's not like, well, I knew it, I knew it. It doesn't bother me because I knew it was coming. He fully feels it. See, listen, the greatest pain of sin is breaking God's heart. I cannot tell you how many times over the years I've counseled people and I've done this myself and they've blown it bad. They've fallen in ways they could never imagine in ways that they've swore they never would fall and they are crying and they're full of pain but the pain is, is an embarrassment of not breaking God's heart but not being as great as they thought they were. Devastated by how immature they actually are. Devastated how much sin's grasp is still in their heart. They're shattered and disillusioned because their idol themselves is shattered into pieces. They're not who they thought they were. They have little consideration of the heart of God and much more about their self-image. Is that you this morning? Is that you last time you fell in a way that just blew your mind that you could fall? Is your heart so gripped because you fell, because you're not who you thought you were, but, or because you broke the heart of our Lord? I welcome you to take your eyes off of yourself this morning and eyes upon his uh, Christ. Look him straight in the eye and say with King David, Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing or steadfast love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. And listen to this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What's the response of Peter? Verse 62, and he wept, went out and wept bitterly. I can see, I can see this kind of weeping from Peter. It's a deep heaving. It's a snotting. It's a convulsing. You know, almost vomiting when you're crying so hard. You know that kind of tears? I see Peter. And what are these kind of tears are these? Are the tears of self-pity? Tears that he let himself down, that he's not as strong and spiritual as he thought he was? The Apostle Paul talks about two kinds of sorrow in 2 Corinthians. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And here's the tricky thing. They look the same in the moment. I can't tell you how many times I've met with people and they cried tears, rivers of tears, so broken over their sin. And I've learned over time that I don't know the source of those tears until time shows the source of those tears. They could swear to me. They could cry. They could tear their shirt. They could throw, find ash somewhere and throw it on their head. They could do every kind of sensational moment. But what you know is that in time, it reveals the source of those tears. And if you know the rest of the story of Peter, we know what happens with him. We can confidently surmise the source of these tears was the broken heart of love over his Savior. Peter is brought back to one of his first encounters with Jesus. Actually, the very beginning of Peter's ministry with Jesus, an encounter with Jesus is him doubting Jesus. 
And what does he say? Verse 8 in chapter 5, verse in Luke. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. And yet there's hope for Peter and there's hope for us. We're like Peter. We're like Peter. What do we see later on? When the disciples hear that the tomb is empty, who's sprinting for it? Who? Peter. When the disciples are fishing and see Jesus on the shore, who dives into the ocean to, the, to go see Jesus? Peter. See, the question you can wonder is, is, who is what is going to happen with Peter? Is he going to be like Judas, where we see that Judas is beat, eaten up with the shame and guilt that he hangs himself? He realizes he betrayed innocent blood? Is Peter going to hang himself? No, the difference between Peter and Judas is that Judas turns in on himself with his sin and shame, and Peter runs to Jesus with his sin and shame. That's the difference. That's the difference between the Holy Spirit working in someone's heart. See, you can be deeply broken about your sin and not have the Holy Spirit because you're thinking about yourself. But the power of the Holy Spirit is that it's working in Peter a desire to run to Jesus with his sin and shame. How does Peter do such a thing? Is it because he's made of tougher stuff than them? Luke twenty two thirty two. 32. Remember what Jesus said. Would you pray, say this out loud? But I have prayed for you. Peter's strength to return is not found in himself, but Christ's prayers for him. And that's our confidence. When we feel the temptation to look at other people who fell and we, we, stopped, we came back and they did it, and we're like, look at those sinners. Look at they, they haven't come back. They're still in their sin. Do you know why you're back with him? It's because Jesus is praying for you. It's the Holy Spirit is working in you. And later on, we see the absurdity of Jesus' actions in love, that he does not just restore G Peter three times in the Gospel of John. We see that he puts him in a place of leadership. This is scandalous grace. What kind of Jesus is this? What kind of man, what kind of person forgives a man who denied him with curses of hellfire and abandons him at the darkest hour and not only restores him relationally, but restores him into a position of authority? Only, only the Bible, only in the church, only the gospel. And this Jesus, who loves like this, who loves Peter like this, loves the world. He loves you. Even when you and I fail, even when we deny him in front of our family, friends, or coworkers, even strangers, we can deny him. And maybe you don't deny him saying like, I don't know, Jesus. But we deny him with our complicity, our silence, our words, or the lack of words. And yet Jesus still loves you in the midst of that cowardice. And he wants to restore you, all of us, to himself. And he wants to use you for his great purposes for the world. There are two extremes in the church often. On one extreme, we cannot fathom that God would forgive us. Our sin, our shame, our darkness is so great, we cannot even fathom that God, the, who is so bright, so holy, so loving, so light, would love us. And so we avoid him or we reprogram the gospel and say, I need to put myself into this penalty box and do a lot of good things for a long time until I feel holy and good enough, like I earned your forgiveness and I can then stand before you. That's one extreme. And if you grew up in church, especially a legalist, legalistic background, that may be your temptation. You are still in the penalty box trying to be good enough, earn yourself. Prove to God you're worthy of love. Prove to God you're worthy of forgiveness. You earned it. 
that you felt bad enough. The other extreme is this. This is also an extreme in church, is that you feel entitled to his forgiveness and love. Of course you should forgive me. Of course you should love me. That's what you do, you're God. And, 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 and the results of that kind of thinking is a very casual approach to sin. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound, as, as Paul talks about? You're not stunned by the grace of God. So, so the reality is that if you are not in shock and surprise that God would forgive you, you're not understanding your sin or the gospel. And yet the delicate tension is that he does forgive you and love you in light of your sin. And we got to be careful of both of these polarizing sides. One of, of never being good enough and, and, and our sin is too great and his grace is too little. And then also thinking that our sin is not a big deal and his grace is abounding. And of course he should love us because you know, that's what he does. There's a delicate tension of feeling the great weight of our sin and how we have no right, no business knowing God. And yet he, in his marvelous, unfathomable love, loves us still. And that tension is complicated tension to live in. And we don't like those tensions. So we usually pick one or the other. I don't really care about my sin. It's okay. Grace abounds. He died for me. I'm going to just live in this. It's comfortable. Or you're constantly in the place of trying to earn yourself. But regardless of what extreme you are on, the solution is the same that you look into Jesus's eyes and you receive his forgiveness. You turn to him, you go to him with your sin and your shame and your failures and you receive his forgiveness that he is so glad to give you because he died for it. So wherever you are in that spectrum this morning, I, I welcome you to look at Jesus in his eyes. Look in his eyes, this man of love, this innocent man who loves enemies, the man who we have no business having a relationship with yet, but so freely gives his health, self to us. The man who died a sinner's death, treated like he's a criminal. He defeats sin and death by absorbing sin and death. This is the God we serve. And if you're not sure you have peace with this God, you're not sure that you have his forgiveness, please talk to someone today. We want to walk with you. We want you to have forgiveness and peace with God. If you feel like you're spiritually asleep and slumbering and you need help and you need someone praying, listen, sometimes we're so sleepy. We're so full of doubt. We're so struggling. We can't pray. And then in those moments, you just grab someone, a healthy person, a godly person, say, I can't pray, but can you pray with me? Can you pray for me? Can you stand by my side? If that's you, grab someone today during the ministry time. We're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. And during this time, maybe you need to go pray with someone that's there on their heart, on your heart. Or maybe you need to tell someone, pray with me. I'm struggling. I'm in the penalty box or pray with me. I think so little of my sin and I, I so feel entitled to God's grace. Wherever you are, maybe you need to grab someone and say, pray for me. I need your help. Be with the father right now with a heart that says your kingdom come, your will be done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus who is like you. Oh God, these, this passage is far grander than I can, can explain. Even if I had the tongue of an angel, and a thousand more years of scholarship and prayer and thought about this passage, I still will fail to show the glories of your love, the glories of your power, the glories of your forgiveness and your mercy and your compassion. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take this text and illuminate it for our hearts to see afresh of how good and powerful you are and how loving you are. And if anyone is spiritually sleeping or is on either extreme that I mentioned, bring them to you. Help them look you in the eye and receive your love and forgiveness. Holy Spirit, come and move in our hearts right now. 
In Jesus' name, amen.